Guys, hello. It is Caitlin, your host of With a Side of Crime. I have my guest host, Cruzy, here with us today. I'll give you a little paw tap for him to say hello before he jumps down and starts acting the complete ass. There it goes. I'm sure you're all wondering, just chomping at the bit to know what we're going to be cooking this week. Well, I have a delicious, rich recipe for you. It will make your stomach hurt. Like, your farts will be very hot um, after you make this. But it's, I mean, I think it's worth it. So, it's going to be a crawfish fettuccine. Um, if you're in a different country, I don't know necessarily that you'll have all these ingredients, which poses a problem. So now I'm going to try to think of things that are more friendly to people in other countries. But let me just go ahead and get into this recipe. So we're going to do a pound of fettuccine, which that's a shitload of pasta. Like, I don't know if you're going to need that much pasta unless you're feeding like a family of 10. So. So we're going to just do a classic crawfish fettuccine, like I said. Okay, all that pasta. If you're okay with having like a week's worth of leftover pasta, then you just be my guest. I usually do about half the box. There's three of us in the house. Well, maybe like three-fourths of the box. Because pasta just like, that shit just, I don't know, it like multiplies in the pot. Um, you're going to need a half a stick of butter. If you don't have butter, which I didn't, and I didn't want to use margarine because I really feel like that's gross, I used um, olive oil to saute my veggies, which brings me to my next ingredient. You're going to do a 10-ounce bag of frozen seasoning blend, which they don't have in some places. Like, we went to Arizona to visit my uncle, and they didn't have seasoning blend. So if you're bougie or if you just don't have access to seasoning blend or you don't know what that is, So, as I was saying before the dogs started going wild, a green bell pepper, a red bell pepper, and a white onion. And you're going to chop all that up, and you're going to saute it in your butter, which half a stick of butter. Or really, however much butter you want to use. Like, I'm not going to judge you if you just really like butter, or if you just want to use olive oil. Or if you just want to use the bag of seasoning blend, because cutting up onions and peppers is a hassle. It is. Um, get two cloves of garlic. You're going to mince those up or you could just use like two teaspoons of the already minced garlic. You know, work smarter, not harder. It says use salt and pepper to taste, but I use, um, I use Tony's, but I'll get into that in a minute. You're going to get a pound of crawfish tails. Like if you have some left over, if you had a crawfish boil, um, if you peel the tails and have tails left over, or if you're getting frozen tails, I would... 100% recommend getting Louisiana crawfish tails. The ones from China tend to be really like stringy. They're really like break up really easy. So that's just my professional Louisiana opinion. Like you, if you like the Louisiana crawfish tails, you do as you please. Um, you're going to need a cup and a half of half and half 
a pound of Mexican Velveeta. I got the jalapeno kind and it was so good. And then you're going to get some Kraft Parmesan to sprinkle on top. I don't think we did that. But do you do what you want? So you're going to melt your butter in your pot. And then you're going to add your seasoning blends. Then be your onions and your peppers. And, and you're going to cook them until they, until they start to get a little tender. Turn a little bit brown. Mwah. So then you're going to add your garlic to the pot. Okay, so after you let that cook simmer a little bit, add your crawfish tails. And before you put anything else, after you add your crawfish tails in, sprinkle some Cajun seasoning, i.e. Tony Sachery's on the top of it. Okay, and let that cook down for a little bit so you can get some of that flavor in there. And then put your half and half in. Okay, just let it sit for a little bit. Have it on a low heat until it starts to bubble. But stir it like frequently. You don't want your sauce sticking to the bottom of the pot because it's a hassle i mean unless you have a non-stick pot then you know live your best life take your velveta like i said i used the jalapeno kind and it was really good cut it into squares because it'll make your life a whole lot easier cut it into squares and then just place them you know throughout the pan of crawfish tails and let that melt down and then you're just going to let it cook and keep stirring it so you get like a nice thick sauce. Um, and then you're going to boil your pasta. And then once your pasta's boiled, your meal's pretty much done. You can sprinkle some cheese on top. You're going to have a nice, rich Louisiana meal. Like I said, that will really have your stomach cutting some flips. But it is worth it in the end. It is so good. So if you make this recipe, let me know what you think. Get to cooking. Um, then we could sit down, get into our story for this week, and remember that the dishes that we discuss on this show pair best with a side of crime. So let's get into it. I never knew making a podcast could be so easy until one of my friends told me about Anchor. So if you don't know what Anchor is, let me just break it down for you. It's free. There's creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. You don't need any fancy programs. Anchor will distribute your podcast for you, so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many more, and save you a whole lot of time. You can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to make a podcast in one place. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. As far as our case goes for this week, there seems to be a thing with trios. You know, they say things happen in threes, and I didn't realize it. Um... That it was going to be three episodes of trios until I decided to cut this episode into two parts. Um, part one and part two because it is just a lot of information and it's a very <sighs> crazy. You're going to see. Let me get into the case and then you can draw your own conclusions from this. So this is a case of the West Memphis Three. Um, they have a movie about it called Devil's Knot, and it's the true story of the West Memphis Three. It's a crime novel as well about the murders of three eight-year-old boys and the three teenagers that were charged with the crime of their murder. Okay, now these three teen boys became known as the West Memphis Three, which I originally thought it was the three little boys who were killed, which was not the case. The book revolves around the idea um that the three boys were convicted based on the satanic panic that was happening in the early 90s instead of actual evidence. 
So on May 5th, 1993, three eight-year-old boys were reported missing, and the boys were Steve Branch, Michael Moore, and Christopher Byers in the West Memphis, Arkansas. The boys were best friends. They were all second graders at Weaver Elementary. They were supposedly last seen together by some neighbors who had seen them playing outside around 6.30. Now, in the movie, the boys were supposed to be back home. Well, at least Steve Branch was supposed to be home by 4-ish. And um, his father went to pick up his mother that night from work, and he had never came home. So the first report to the police was made by Byers' adoptive parents at around 7 p.m. that day. The police did a limited search of the neighborhood and the surrounding area that night, as well as the neighbors did a search as well. A more thorough search came the next morning at about 8 p.m. You know, they had some daylight. It was easier. The searchers checked all of West Memphis, but put majority of their focus on Robin Hood Hills, which is where the boys were reported to have last been seen. Searchers looked for the boys as a human chain, so they were shoulder to shoulder and swept through the woods, but they did not find the boys. At about 1.45 p.m. that day, a parole officer saw a boy's black shoe floating in the muddy waters of the creek that led to a drainage canal. A search of the creek revealed the boy's bodies. So he saw the shoe and then started feeling his way through the bottom of the creek, and that is how he found the bodies. The boys were naked and had been hogtied with their own shoelaces. Their right hand tied to their right feet and vice versa. Their clothes were also found in the creek, twisted in the mud with sticks. The clothing was inside out, and only the underwear of one of the boys was recovered. Christopher Byers had lacerations on multiple parts of his body and mutilation on his genitals. Autopsy revealed that Byers died of multiple injuries, but the other boys died of multiple injuries plus drowning. It was suspected that the boys were raped, but an expert disputed this theory. Experts called by the prosecution said that Byers' wounds were the result of a knife attack and animal attacks post-mortem. The police thought that the boys were killed where they were found, but critics of this theory believe that the assault, at the very least, happened somewhere else. As far as the suspects went, the police almost unfairly went after three boys in the community who stood out as being different. They were outliers in the community, and suspicions immediately fell on them. The three boys dressed in black, they had long hair, and they listened to heavy metal music. And like I said, there was a satanic panic at this time. So people were really like on witch hunts for people who were different. In Arkansas, being different was essentially the same thing as being a criminal. There were rumors of Satanism, animal sacrifices, and even human sacrifices. Damien Eccles, Jason Baldwin, and Jesse Miss Kelly were painted as a trio of satanic followers, with Damien as their ringleader and the other boys as his satanic minions. The three boys were charged, tried, and sentenced for the murder of the three boys. The people of West Memphis slept easier because they felt that their little town was safer. Despite feeling safer because the boys were now in prison, The residents of West Memphis didn't know about the other suspicious activities surrounding the killings of the boys that the police willingly ignored. The same night that the boys went missing, a black male went into a Bojangles located about a mile from the crime scene. 
He went into the ladies' room, and according to the workers in the restaurant, he seemed disoriented. The man was bleeding and had left smears of blood on the bathroom walls. Officer Regina Minks responded to the call through the Bojangles drive-thru, but by that time, the man had already left and the police didn't investigate the bathroom that night. The manager thought there may be a connection between the man and the case. He reported the incident and officers checked out the ladies' room. The manager gave the officer a pair of sunglasses he believed the man had left behind. Detectives took some blood samples off the tiles and the floor of the bathroom. Brunridge, who was a police detective, said he lost the blood scrapings. A hair belonging to a black male was found on a sheet wrapped around one of the victims. There were two other teenage boys that were suspicious as well, Chris Morgan and Brian Holland. The, the boys abruptly left for Oceanside, California, four days after the boys' bodies were found. Morgan was casual with the boys as he drove an ice cream truck in the neighborhood. After being arrested in Oceanside, the boys took a polygraph test and both of their tests indicated deception when they were asked about involvement in the boys' murders. Morgan admitted to having a long story of drug and alcohol abuse as well as a frequent blackouts, which led him to say that he could have killed the boys, but he didn't remember if he had. He ended up recanting that statement. Blood and urine samples of the two boys were sent to West Memphis, but aside from their arrest in California, there was no further indication of their arrest or investigation as suspects in this case. There was also suspicious activity from family members of the boys, despite that. Prosecution moved forward with the trial for the three boys. Officers felt that the case had cult-like overtones and that Damien was a good potential suspect because he had an interest in the occult and officers felt like he was capable of murdering children. No evidence, just vibes. I just feel like he's capable of this, so let's find something that fits that narrative. Two days after the bodies were discovered, Damien took a polygraph test. The polygraph examiner claimed that there was deception during Damien's polygraph test. During a formal interview, Damien mentioned that one of the victims had wounds on his genitals. The detectives viewed this as incriminating. Damien was interviewed more than any other person, apparently not as a suspect, but as a source of information. On June 3rd, the police interrogated Jesse Miss Kelly Jr., who is Jesse Miss Kelly, Despite him having an IQ of 72, meaning that he was below average, so he was a little on the slower side. So I am not even 100% sure if he really understood what was going on. Despite him being a minor, he was questioned without his parents being present. Jesse's father gave him permission to go to the police, but never gave him permission to be interrogated. The police questioned Jesse for 12 hours. Only two segments, totaling 46 minutes of the 12 hours, were recorded. Jesse recanted his confession. He said the police intimidated, coerced, and indirectly threatened him. He said he was afraid of the police during this interrogation. He was read his rights, but later on, Jesse said he didn't understand them. Cue his below-average IQ. The Arkansas Supreme Court ruled that Jesse's confession was voluntary and that he did understand his rights and their consequences. Which is just strange to me because how do you know what he understands? He clearly had a low IQ and there was a lot of police intimidation reported in this case. 
Pieces of his statement were leaked to the press before the trials ever even began. So not long after his first confession, police arrested Eccles and Baldwin. After his original confession, Jesse made another statement to the police. His lawyer was in the room with him and he repeatedly suggested that Jesse not say anything. Jesse went against this evidence and proceeded to detail how the boys were abused and murdered. The judge went on to write two detailed critiques of where the major errors and misconceptions were with this police investigation. I'm sorry, not the judge, his lawyer went on to write a detailed critique of what he thought was wrong with this investigation. Now, Vicki Hutchison, she had a whole lot to say. She was a new resident to West Memphis and she played a pretty big role in the investigation despite her recanting her story later on blaming it on, what else, coercion and intimidation from the local police. On May 6, 1993, earlier the same day the boys were found, Vicky took a polygraph test to determine whether or not she stole money from her West Memphis employer. Her son Aaron was also present, but he was apparently such a distraction that the polygraph test could not be administered. Now, Aaron sometimes played with the boys who had been murdered. He mentioned to the officer administering the polygraph test that the boys were killed, quote, at the playhouse. The bodies had been found where Aaron suggested they had been found. Aaron claimed that the boys had been murdered by Satanists who spoke Spanish. But every statement after that was highly inconsistent. He was unable to pick out Damien, Jesse, or Jason from a lineup, indicating that he was either lying, that the boys were not the ones who committed the crime, or both. About June 1st, 1993, Vicky agreed to let the police tap her house and Jesse set up a meeting between her and Damien. Vicky said that Damien made no incriminating statements or claims during their meeting, but she also told the police that about two weeks after the boys had been killed, she, Jesse, and Damien went to a Wiki meeting in Arkansas. Vicky claimed that at this meeting, Damien got drunk and bragged about killing the boys. Vicky was unable to recall the location of the Wiccan meeting and never named anyone else who was there. She supposedly implicated the boys because she wanted to avoid the theft charges herself. As far as the trials went, Jesse and Miss Kelly was tried by himself and the other two boys were tried together. Now, under the Bruton Rule, which was a 1968 Supreme Court ruling, Jesse's confession could not be used against the other two boys, which is why he was tried separately. They all pled not guilty. During Jesse's trial, an expert on false confessions testified that the brief recordings of Jesse's interrogation were classic examples of police coercion and intimidation. Other people also noticed that Jesse's confessions were inconsistent with each other, as well as him saying incorrect details about the crime scene and victims. Like, for example, he said something along the lines of, wire or string being used to hogtie the boys when really it was their own shoelaces. He also admitted that he saw Damien rape one of the boys. Now there was initial suspicion that the boys had been raped because their anuses were dilated, but upon forensic investigation, there was no evidence of rape and it turned out that dilation of the anus is just something that happens post-mortem. A jury convicted Jesse of one count of first-degree murder and two counts of second-degree murder. Three weeks later, Damien and Jason went on trial. 
The prosecution called Dale Griffiths, who graduated from an unaccredited university, as an expert in the occult to testify to the murders as being a satanic ritual. On March 19, 1994, the court convicted both boys of three counts of murder. Damien was sentenced to death and Jason was sentenced to life in prison. So after the loss of three young boys, this town was willing to sacrifice three more boys who may very well have been innocent just because they were different. Now in the second part next week, I'll be discussing um, the aftermath of the trials, the verdicts, the criticisms of the trial, and the new evidence that appeared later on. Thank you guys so much for listening. If this is your first time, I really appreciate you popping in. If you are a return listener, I really appreciate you coming back. Um, Feel free to subscribe on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever you listen to your podcast. And definitely feel free to drop me a rating and review. Thank you guys so much and have a good night.